For August 28th, 2017, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 478, Not Killing Anyone O'Clock. It's the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I don't know why I punch the, the preposition like that to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I don't know what that's about. Um, the overthinkers are like your fu- smart, funny friends from the internet, and we're never happier than when we're hanging out together, talking about our favorite movies, talking about our favorite TV shows, music, books, uh, anything in the culture is better when it's shared and enjoyed with your group of smart, funny friends. I'm Matt Rather, and my smart, funny friends this week are Peter Fenzel. Hello. Hello. And Mark Lee. Hello. Hello. <laughs> uh, so uh, this was a week where a lot of big climaxes happened in, in pop culture. If you didn't uh, know about it, the uh, Floyd Mayweather, Conor McGregor fight, or sorry, Ewan McGregor fight happened this, uh, this weekend. And uh, the finale, season finale of the penultimate season of Game of Thrones happened this weekend. And uh, there was a lot of kind of big ticket items. Now we're going to talk about Game of Thrones. It's not a, we record before it airs, so we'll uh, do that next week. So, you know, fair warning, next week is an uh, all spoilers Game of Thrones episode. Don't worry, we'll warn you again. But uh it it sort of brought to mind the fact that like when you, when you're not doing, you know, huge franchises or enormous media cultural events, there is a kind of like spackle. There is like a cultural spackle that goes over the cracks of your experience. You know, the, the, the films that you kind of rewatch or the events that you do that are maybe not necessarily part of some kind of grand narrative. And it seems like more and more things are marketed as, as these sort of like grand events, grand, uh, grand things for, for precisely this reason, the kind of the pro- proliferation of media channels means that um, no one thing, uh, there can be greater variety, but you sort of sacrifice chart position, right? Like no one thing is going to to do, I don't know, what a Super Bowl does or something, what a big, what a big event does. And so, so we're going to talk a little bit about the, the, the spackle, the cultural spackle, the things in the, uh, the cracks um, of our our cultural lives that may not be shared with everybody and and in doing so i i guess we sort of bring each other up to speed on uh on what we've been seeing and what what we've been uh what we've been thinking about and uh we might introduce you to some stuff that you uh that you know uh or that you don't know or that you uh might be interested in in checking out yourself so uh first up uh, mark i understand that this is a uh that this is a uh, anniversary year for uh, Terminator 2 and that the, the film has been re-released in 3D. Terminator 2, T2 3D, Judgment Day, uh, Judgment Day by Day. And the uh, <laughs> uh, and that uh, surely when you went to see this in the theater, as no doubt you did, the theater was packed full uh, of standing room only Terminator fanatics well- w- to watch this. Is that not the case? Well, Matt, I have some well actuaries for you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Number one, it is not an anniversary year for Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Uh, I guess I suppose every year is an anniversary year. <laughs> if, you didn't but get not, me not anything, a, Mark? <laughs> yeah, right. Not a special one. It was released in 1991. So this is what the, the uh, 26th anniversary, the 25th anniversary was last year. Um, interestingly, it is the uh, 20th anniversary of when Judgment Day is dated um, uh, in Terminator 1 and 2, right? Oh, uh, August, uh, August 2017, August 1997 is when Judgment Day occurs in, in the first two Terminator yeah. movies. So I, also, that. I also uh, just want to note that traditionally in the kind of modern rubric of uh, anniversary gifts, the, 25th, the 26th anniversary is one where you give pictures as a gift. And I think James Cameron uh, honored that tradition with you, did he not? Uh, he he did. Uh, it was a photograph of me uh, sitting next to a dog in Mexico, of all places, taken by a small boy. 
um, from the future. It's very strange. Um, okay, so the other well, more important well, actually, for this is that uh, I was not uh, accompanied by a throng of fellow moviegoers who were very excited to see Terminator 2. Um, some context, I, uh, if you went to the movies this weekend... Uh, you were not accompanied by a lot of people at all because, according to Box Office Mojo, this is the worst box office weekend in over 15 years. Um, and it's been a bad summer at the box office. Is that in seasonally general. adjusted, Mark, or is that in absolute terms? Uh, I mean, like, by seasonally, you mean like, like annually adjusted, like for inflation? No, no, um, I mean seasonally, I, as in this is the summer and you would expect it to be higher than like February, but you mean just overall? Uh, I, I don't have uh, specific stats on that, um, but the long and short of it is basically like bad uh, summer for the movies, extremely bad weekend in particular uh, uh, for for the movies um, for, for a variety of reasons, including uh, competition from the, the the big fight this weekend. But what this all meant for myself personally is I was very excited to see Terminator 2 in movies. I polled my usual crew of people who I would expect to uh, be somewhat excited to see Terminator 2 in the movies. Uh, a resounding uh, silence of a response from them, including my wife. Uh, so basically no one wanted to see Terminator 2 with me. I went to see it in my local multiplex in the second largest auditorium they have in the house. Um, seats several hundred. There's a balcony. There's a freaking balcony in this particular screening theater. There were less than 10 people at my screening. Granted, it was late Saturday night. Well, um, I mean, to the point that was uh, precisely co- uh, conflicting with the, uh, the McGregor fight. Uh, so if you're interested in seeing that, you weren't seeing Terminator 2 with me at the time. So uh, I'm there virtually alone in a movie theater, just me and my favorite movie of all time and my 3D glasses. And I'm sinking in and I- I'm I'm trying to enjoy it uh, for the sort of the visceral experience of seeing it in the theater with a the big sound and, you know, the 3D and all that kind of stuff. And um, certainly I-, I was able to do that. But of course... Um, this being overthinking it, my mind couldn't help but wander to sort of a, a couple in a couple of different directions. One is the extreme micro, because I've seen this movie so many times. I'm constantly hunting for new little details, and also, of course, the macro, which is that why did everybody else not come up to come out to see Terminator Two with me? And people stop caring about this. Is is Terminator somehow just kind of played out, or just like not resonating in the popular culture the way that say? I don't know, Star Wars uh, or other sort of legacy pop culture properties are, are, are resonating. So let's start with the micro. Um, one of the, the things that I do when I watch Terminator over and over again, and this is probably like, I don't know, at least the 20th time that I've seen this movie, is I keep trying I hunt out the small little visual details around the sides to see if there's something else to, to notice that I haven't noticed before that might speak to the broader uh, themes of the movie or it might just be me going completely off the rails with this movie and losing all perspective. So here's my new detail, and I'm very excited to share this with you all because I don't think anybody else has noticed this on the internet. In Terminator 2 Judgment Day, there is one character, and I believe only one character, who wears a watch throughout the entire movie. And Pete and Matt, who do you you think that is? Uh, Is it Eddie Furlong as John Connor? You are correct. <laughs> he wears a watch, uh, and, and I can say for certainty that none of the other main players wears a watch. Certainly, the the, the two Terminators don't wear a watch. Uh, Sarah Connor doesn't wear a watch. Uh, Miles Dyson doesn't wear a watch. Um, so that's who was wearing the watch. And can you can't venture any guesses as to why he's wearing a watch? Well, well, my reasoning that I use to come to that conclusion is. Very, very wrong, but produced the right result, which should be a lesson to all of us, which is that the first thing I thought was, okay, it's 1991 or so. What famous movies can I think of that had a scene where somebody wore a watch and it was notable? Like who in the culture was wearing watches in the early 90s? And I immediately went to the scene in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure where – Ted tells time traveling Ted to don't forget to wind your watch, Ted, <laughs> because he knows that later on he's going to lose track of time. And uh, and so I'm thinking, well, who's the most similar character in Terminator 2 to Ted from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? John Connor. There you go. QED. So that's a great <laughs> way to arrive at a correct answer through incorrect reasoning. <laughs> nice. So I like go. it. Uh, you still get credit. Pete. Oh, thank um, you. Appreciate it. 
So in re- again, in rewatching this movie for the bazillion time, I mean, there's not a super incredibly profound realization, right? Because it fits in with the things we already know about this movie, which is mainly about John Connor kind of coming of age um, and uh, it, him sort of acting out paternity and masculinity um, in his, uh, his sort of future role as the savior of mankind. The guy's got to wear a watch because he's got to be responsible. Um, and, and the other thing is that he's oddly enough, like one of the, the sort of the most even keeled and most grounded character throughout the entire movie. Um, and he gets to wear the watch. He knows what time it is. He's sort of, you know, keeping pace for everything. Yeah, in notable who, contrast, who wears to his, the watch in this family? Yeah, right. Yeah. No, seriously, notable contrast to his mother who, uh, you know, goes through this horrible traumatic experience, breaks out of the mental institution, um, rescued at the hands of, uh, of, uh, who she had previously considered to be her hunter. Uh, and, uh, also, you know, sets out to kill this guy, Miles Dyson, and then breaks down emotionally unable to do so and is kind of consoled in a common rational way by uh her her son and remember as well um when she's kind of you know uh going off on a rant against miles dyson about how um men like you have never created anything john in his role right as a responsible watch wearing man says mom let's not let's try to be a little more constructive you know really running that meeting and keeping things on time <laughs> and on, and so on he's, he's in charge of the agenda like John Connor's in charge of the agenda. He's the one who's like, yeah. okay, I have X amount well, of days until I have uh-huh. to start the resistance against the machines. Yeah, so, like he, let's he, stay on task. <laughs> he orders the Terminator where to go and what to do and to put his yeah. fit up, to pick his fit up, put it down, and kill the guys versus not kill the guys, that sort of thing. I order you not to kill anyone because <laughs> it's not killing anyone o'clock. Um, okay, so that's my micro observation. The macro observation I have a little less uh, fully formed, um, which is that. Uh, it has to do partly with, uh, I don't know, James Cameron and his inability to really sort of create and sustain franchises, as we see with his uh, failure to get another Avatar movie off the ground in almost 10 years. Um, and the fact that he let Terminator fall into other hands who have uh, done great damage to the franchise. Um, so that's that's part of it. But uh, more so, it's 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 a strange thing, right? Terminator 2 its references have so permeated culture and, you know, uh, even just recently Elon Musk, when he's talking about uh, the dangers of artificial intelligence and uh, killer robots and this sort of thing, still evokes Terminator and Skynet and the media does the same thing as well. These things are, are, are with us. They haven't gone anywhere, but I, I will I'll go out on a limb and say, for whatever reason, interest in the Terminator franchise has waned. Um, it's almost just like it's kind of faded into the background. We take it for granted, and there is not this excitement for going to the multiplex and seeing Terminator 2 again, which well, is kind yeah. of sad. I mean, there also there, – there was kind of a, a couple bad movies, right? Like not, not equally bad and not – um, not totally bad. Like, like each of them had some okay parts in it, but like, uh, the the films were not f- from three on. We're not up to the uh, to the standard of of one and especially two, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So absolutely. I mean, you know, they, there's there's no you know there's no franchise but what we make, and that's like uh, they they really kind of drove that into the ground, and 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 a lot of it I think without the creative input of of james james cameron and the, and like a little bit but a little bit i don't know i i think it's i think that that we could do with with kind of refining the uh the picture of him not being able to get another avatar off the ground the the, the problem is like he's trying to get like what like 17 avatars off the ground uh at <laughs> At once, right? Like the the when you just have unlimited money and no one who's going to tell you what to do, it, it's you know it's a little rough to uh, uh, I don't know to to hold yourself to any kind of to any kind of schedule or or timetable. So it's not like it's not like he's trying and nobody wants to give him the money. They're like they're they're backing up. They've they've installed a permanent money pipeline from Fox headquarters to uh, to James Cameron's compound in Malibu, right? Like the, there's just there's no no shortage of resources and that can be uh, I, I don't know, that can that can sort of be as toxic to creativity as a uh, you know, as a sort of uh, a dearth of resources. I, maybe you don't see it that way. I don't know. Do, do you uh, um, you know, I mean, don't you find Pete, as a, as a creative person, that that sometimes your problem is that you just have too much time and money. 
<laughs> I just have too many avatars. I mean, I, now, you know, he's he's got too many avatars, but he appears to have enough time to say nonsense about Wonder Woman. So, you know, whatever. We'll believe you, James Cameron, I guess, that you're, oh, I'm, I'm working on Avatar. Like, James, come to dinner. I've got an avatar I'm working on. Jeez. So, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I guess uh, having too much time and money is a common problem. Um, so, and I, and I think we all identify. Yeah. With I'm, sure, I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of people can, can relate. I don't know. I didn't see a ton of advertising. I mean, I, I rarely see advertising. I'm coming around to the, to the view that advertising is a tax on poor people because like now, you know, you, you pay for enough streaming services and you can almost never see advertising again, except on like websites and things like this, but the, you know, in the, in the, the sidebars and, uh, and, and then in, in those you can get passive aggressive messages if you try try to use an ad blocker you can get a thing like you know our business model relies on a bunch of crappy advertisements that steal your personal information and track your behavior and sell it to uh you know unregulated third-party data provision services that uh that are going to follow you around for the rest of your life and probably end you on some government watch list so please don't use an ad blocker it's bad for the ecosystem of content uh, uh, but but uh, I, I didn't see it advertised. I didn't see billboards for it, for example, or or uh, or anything like that. Like, how how did you know about this, Mark? Was it just like did your did your cybernetic uh, cybernetic brain uh, start tingling? Uh, by what you mean, my Facebook feed? Yes, um, I, I like I, at least Terminator Two and possibly Arnold Schwarzenegger on Facebook, and was oh. fed nonstop ads over the course of the last month or two. Um, I have a totally unproven theory, which is that they saw that this movie was tracking as an extremely low level of interest, and they just completely uh, flooded Facebook with as many ad impressions for as many ad impressions for this as possible. I, I mean, on that note, I should also add that my uh, uh, my sense that th- this is um, not doing well or as well as expected um, is mostly just based on my anecdotal observation. I mean, looking at the latest from Box Office Mojo was just reports. Uh, estimated, let's see here, uh, 582,000 from 386 locations. So that's what, like, uh, 1,500 per screen, uh, which I don't, I don't know. Have great, I don't think that's very good. Um, <laughs> so I mean, with, without a not lot of great, like, you Bob. Know, data, and, not, not a lot of data and commentary on it, but my, my pretty good sense is that, uh, it did not generate a lot of excitement, um, which again is, is sad, but what the heck, you know, we've got Terminator 2 on streaming and Blu-ray and all sorts of different things. If you haven't seen it already, why are you listening to this? Uh, go you know, enjoy it at home, if not at the theater. No fate will we make. Pete, you also saw a movie. Yeah, it's actually really similar to Terminator 2. It's a, it's a movie with some time, non-linear kind of time action stuff going on where you go back in time and forward in time. It's a movie about, uh, in one timeline, there's a young professional woman who lives in New York City who is being kind of stalked or hunted. or, or She's trying to stay one step ahead of this monster in her life that's trying to keep, uh, is trying to break up her, her life and sort of destroy her future. And then in the back-in-time version, they go back in time, and the same monster is back in time to get this child and, try, and, and drives around with the child throughout America trying to, prevent, trying to keep one step ahead of the people who are hunting them. And so you have this monster who is both kind of like a protector monster in one timeline for the child, but then it is sort of this confounding and hunting and terrible monster for the adult. And and the and the and about the female character kind of trying to come to terms with the two sides uh, of this kind of hunter killer of the, her emotional life. I'm of course talking about the. Uh, prestige movie The Glass Castle starring Brie Larson, uh, Woody Harrelson, Naomi Watts. Uh, it was not released in December probably because they don't think it was good enough to win Oscars, although I would be absolutely shocked if Woody Harrelson isn't nominated for an Oscar for this movie because his acting performance in this movie is is titanic and ridiculous. I mean, it's ridiculous in sort of the scope and intensity of the kind of different sorts of scenes he has to do, and, and it's just a real textbook Oscar performance, and so I would be very, very shocked if he wasn't at least nominated but it would also be shocked if he won. Uh, and and, and um, the rest of the movie, it's, it's, a, it's an adaptation of a book that also tells the story of a kind of well-off, socially connected New York writer who started out living with pseudo-hippie-ish, pseudo-kind uh, of um, 
uh, derelict parents who at times may have neglected her, at times may have uh, preached her about being a free spirit in ways that really resonated with her and helped form her personality, and at times may have outright abused her in in, uh, physical and mental and emotional ways. And uh, I enjoyed the movie. The movie did not do well critically. The movie has very mixed reviews is a kind way of putting it. It's at 48% of Rotten Tomatoes right now. I'm sure it is a prime candidate for Hollywood blaming Rotten Tomatoes for its bad summer, which seems to be one of the trends that's coming about. But I can totally see why. Uh, but uh, it is a movie that is, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's got a very sentimental soundtrack. And I'll, I'll posit this to you guys. Can you guys think of an instance recently, because I feel like this has happened a bunch of times to me recently where you've watched a movie and the music in the movie has just felt really off just like really really off i mean we also have, we also we also have baby driver that's true <laughs> but no that's not uh, I, I, that's I, not I, totally I see, fair i didn't see baby driver but we all saw suicide squad <laughs> that's true that's for, true. for, for different yeah. reasons though i think yeah, <laughs> so suicide squad, about, yeah. I, I, the movies that come to mind for me the jiggly or geely the classic Ben Affleck, Jennifer Lopez, terrible movie is as a similar sort of challenge. Now, now the movie music in the glass castle isn't that terrible. Um, and it does fit, but it is jarring and you have to, in order to enjoy the movie, I think you have to see the discontinuity between the music and the story as a feature rather than a bug, because it's the kind of music that you would expect in a live action Disney film, like million dollar arm starring John Hamm, where he's like, I'm going to go to India and find the best baseball pitcher. And there's this sort of like swelling heartwarming music that plays at times that accompanies everything that he does. And this is a movie in which there are like horrific scenes of abuse and, and, yet there's this this sort of heartwarming surging americana you know rudy but like on sanka kind of music that's sort of flowing underneath all these nostalgic scenes and it makes it hard to assimilate what's happening in a comfortable way which could be good and could be bad depending upon what you think the goal of the movie is uh, i think the, the actors do a really good job of living in this very difficult place but i'm not sure the direction is entirely up to the task because especially the end of the movie in turn is, is more abrupt and like seems to skip a lot of time and a lot of really important events and sort of rush you through to a conclusion which i won't spoil it for you because there's no reason. <laughs> There's like literally no reason I could think of that make to make it worthwhile to spoil the glass castle for you and what happens. It's also a real person's life, so you can just look it up on Wikipedia if you want. But uh, but when it goes back in time and forward in time, a lot of the question is about whether this woman can forgive the abuse that she suffered at the hands of her father and the neglect she suffered at the hands of her mother. And the movie seems to sometimes want you to think that that's going to be really easy, and at sometimes it makes you want to think that's going to be impossible. And it sort of goes along this this path, and I, I think the book probably had more room to like really explore this from whole sorts of different directions. But the movie has to give you conclusions, or feels compelled, it seems, to give you conclusions uh, that at times fall short, and that at times are worth it. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Do you guys have favorite uh, family problematic family road movies I, <laughs> like Little Miss Sunshine? I do, or? but I, I, I kind of want to take this in a, in a slightly yeah. different direction. Do you mind if I hijack the conversation? No, by all means, uh, by all means. You know, this, uh, this, those who live in glass castles can't throw stones. Can, so, you know, be my guest. <laughs> when when we were talking, when we were planning the episode, Pete said that he wanted to talk about Glass Castle, and I misheard it, and I said, "You want to talk about Blast Castle?" And it's what. <laughs> What is Blast Castle? That sounds the hot new phone app. It's advertised before all my YouTube videos because I don't have YouTube Red or whatever it's called. Yeah, exactly. Yet another way in which advertising is a tax on the people who don't want to pay. Your kingdom. Click on the towers to defend your kingdom. Here, here's the bad CGI and a woman in a tight dress. Oh, good lord! Do you guys get those commercials? I oh, yeah. get so many of those. Oh my goodness! Sure. It's miserable. Yeah, you I give, mean, probably you give oh, I, I, I thought that's what YouTube was for. <laughs> watch bad CGI and women in tight dresses. Uh, no, everybody knows uh, that YouTube uh. is for watching old clips of Mike Tyson and analysis of Game of Thrones episodes of Magic the Gathering tournaments. <laughs> I, I, That's I, what YouTube is for. I get I get all my makeup tips from YouTube. That's mostly what I watch. Uh, what I watch on you know. Beauty. Great for bicycle repair. It's great for that too and home repair. Oh man. But anyway, I to, I, sorry, I'm, I, not, I'm not. I'm not. I just I'm, counter hijacked you. So now go back to your original hijack. I'm gonna hijack my. I'm gonna hijack my hijack. Um, yeah. The uh, I, I once was having a talk with uh, Overthinker Matt Belinky, um, and we talked about. Uh, 
uh, we talked about, I, I was t- sharing with him an observation that I had heard on some sort of podcast back in the early days of podcast, which is that like, if you go into a bookstore, uh, it was talking about the video market versus the, like the print publishing market, which was still a thing at the time, 10, 10 years ago or something like that. If you go into a bookstore, uh, it's overwhelmingly nonfiction. Right, and nonfiction is this this huge word, like things that aren't novels or poems. Uh, nonfiction can be history, it can be you know uh, cookbooks, it can be all kinds of things. Um, a mature publishing market was like ninety percent nonfiction, ten percent fiction, uh, and and that the video market was sort of or the kind of the then it wasn't exactly video, it was mostly movies and TV, but the like visual image market, the moving picture market was almost almost reversed. And that, like, as the, um, you know, as that market matured, uh, you know, you'd see something that mirrors a little more the, the, the then, you know, vital print market with magazines and, and books and things like that. And, and, you know, Blink said to me, um, well, what, you're gonna, you think 90% of movies in theaters are going to be documentaries that's ridiculous and it was like yes that's ridiculous you're not it's not it's not what i'm saying it's saying that video is going to enter our lives and like now you know if i want to cook something if i want to you know get makeup tips if i want to repair a bicycle um I was, you know, I don't know. I was doing all kinds of things. Oh, I was, I was looking at e-bikes. I want to get my dad an e-bike. Or I, uh, let, me, let me be uh, more specific. I want to recommend to my dad an e-bike that he gets for himself because um, those things ain't cheap. And uh, it's all, it's all, it's all YouTube. And uh, the, uh, one of the top searches on YouTube is badly rendered uh, 3D CGI of women in tight clothing. So you know, so there's, it's so like we we are. Hearing the magazine market in in that um, in that as well. What role, Pete? This is direct, the direction I had. This is the question I had uh, for for you. What role does this kind of movie, this kind of like middle brow prestige movie, have have for you? I mean, I feel like our categories need to be need to be talked about uh, a little bit, right? Because there are, it used to be that there were like, you know, genre movies, there were like popcorn movies, um, not all hugely expensive tent poles. Um, there was a kind of like middle brow, mid market adult story movie. And then there would be like Cleopatra or something like huge spectacles or, or uh, you know, things that were kind of expected to clean up at the awards that were like very artful, but also like a part of the point of them was scale. Now it seems like we've married the scale and the, the popcorn movies for, for um, a variety of largely market driven reasons. And that this sort of like this sort of middle tier movie is something that has that has gone out right or they're they're now these are now the awards movies you're like you know 30 million i actually don't know the budget of this movie but something like a something that is you know with a budget of less than 50 million dollars and that has an a, a story and some kind of artistic aspiration to it and like uses uh name actors that you recognize but ones that are sort of noted for uh for acting and not necessarily for you know celebrity or Something like that, like it, and, and uh, what, what function does this sort of thing have for you in your life? It reminds me of like literary fiction, sort of like second tier literary fiction, a little bit stuff that you know, stuff that's not winning the National Book Award, but but that is not like a pulpy mass market paperback. Uh, either and I don't read in that. I, I I mean I don't swim in that pool at all in terms of reading. Uh, honestly, I read mostly nonfiction. <laughs> but the uh, uh, you know I don't know. There, there, there's would, would you find yourself watching this kind of thing in a theater and not as like a Mad Men esque uh, you know the, the television series a lot? I guess you did. So so yeah. that's your answer. So <laughs> I like how you spent 10 minutes asking me the question and then provided my answer to me very quickly. And Moving briefly. right along in the episode. <laughs> um, I like going to movie theaters. I enjoy it. I do it a lot. 
I do it a lot for the podcast. I do it a lot in general. Uh, and you have to have something to see when you go to the movie theater. Now, it's great if it's the event movie that everybody is watching and you want to see it too. But that's not always why I want to go to movie theaters. Sometimes I just want to go to the movie theater. It's a place to be with people. It's a way to get out of the house. The movie theater near my house has ice cream. Other movie theaters have nice seats. Uh, you can't get both ice cream and nice seats, apparently, in a movie theater. <laughs> but uh, you get one or the other. And uh, it's just I enjoy, I enjoy it. And... I recognize that it is a, a hobby that is declining in its popularity, just going to the movies for the sake of going to the movies. Probably a hobby that already declined in, say, like 1935, right? Like it, like it peaked in the 40s. And uh, when television started coming out, the, the movies as sort of a place to go and a thing to do – as a hobby in itself diminished and you began to see the increasing rise of the idea that movies had to be events uh i mean first this this sort of the puzzling through and the muddling through of movies becoming bigger and bigger draws for bigger and bigger reasons the movie re- re- the movie provides the reason for you to go to the theater as opposed to you go to the theater and then you watch a movie um so that's the first thing. I would say I like going to movie theaters, and I like movies like The Glass Castle because it's something I get to watch when I go to the movie theater that was good, and I appreciated it. And um, I honestly probably had a better time watching it in the theater than I would have had if I watched it at home. Second of all, and also because it's part of being in a relationship, that I, that I went with my fiance, and she had read the book, and she had loved the book, and so I went with her. So it's something I got to share with her. Even though it was not something that I necessarily would have gone seen, gone to see without that prompting, not because it was bad, just because it wasn't on my radar, and also because I would have expected it to like it less than I did based on like the posters and stuff. But uh, but it's also something you can. It's about sharing it with other person. That, that's the first thing. And the second thing I would say is I'll I'll provide by way of, of an analogy. So do you guys use the library? Libraries are awesome, by the way. If you don't go to your local library, you should totally check it out. It's a great place. It's awesome. Uh, but do you guys use a library? Yes, sir. Not not recently, no. Yeah, so library is awesome. And in terms of actually being happy, the library is super great. It is not perhaps the best at satisfying your particular hunger or desire at a given moment. But in terms of actually being a happy person, having a public library available to you is, like, awesome. It's relaxing. I mean, maybe it's also about getting older and to the point where the sort of blazing urgencies of youth are kind of fading a little bit and you don't have to be out there doing the thing that you have to do and and whatnot all the time. But, uh, but I love libraries and I've been becoming reacquainted with my public library and it's been great, but I ran into a bit of a problem because I took out a book from the library and I, I read the first say 250 pages of Umberto Eco's Foucault's Pendulum. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> so you, Matt, you already see what the problem is. Why don't you tell me what you foresee the problem is based on this book? <laughs> well, you're you're gonna. I mean, right? Like you're you're gonna put it down for a minute after. You know, you can't swing both ways on the pendulum in one in one fell swoop, right? You gotta you gotta like once the pendulum swings to one side, you gotta hold on to the wall uh, a minute before you before you go, and that like you. You, your civic duty, though, at this point is to return Umberto Eco's Foucault's Pendulum to the library after a certain amount of time. So you're either going yeah. to do, be antisocial and incur fees, um, yes. you know, and, and the fees are by and large trivial, but, you know, they still they still represent, uh, you know, your failure to uphold the social contract, which is, you know, <laughs> <laughs> or you're going to uh, or you're going to leave the, the rest of the pendulum unswung. And, uh, you know, really kind of give up on a, on a, uh, intellectual experience that, that could, or, you know, or aesthetic experience or whatever that could, that could prove, uh, you know, profoundly satisfying to you. So this is a book that is insanely detailed that has, you know, dozens of references to mostly medieval European and Near Eastern history and culture uh, on every page. And where you want it, I don't know, it was written in the 80s, and it, it feels very much like the Da Vinci Code, but, uh, it, but like to the nth degree blown out, and also something of a sort of takedown in advance of the Da Vinci Code. The Da Vinci Code blown out to ad absurdum to the point where you should recognize the absurdity of even the smaller, the writ smaller Da Vinci Codes and American uh, or National Treasures of the World uh, in comparison to a book like this. And it's very challenging, and it takes a lot of time and attention and energy to read. And yes, as you said, when you take it out from the library, you only have a certain amount of time to read it. <laughs> and, uh, and thus, you have to dedicate huge portions of your time to this very challenging work of literature in order to get it done in time to return the book. And so I had uh, renewed it 
you know, already once. And it was getting towards the point where I needed to renew it twice. And I hadn't made uh, much progress in the last couple of weeks on it. And so, because, you know, I have other things to do in my life. And so uh, I just started incurring fees on it. And I was like, oh, no, I've got to return this library book. But I don't want to give up on reading this book because I've enjoyed it so far, but it's been really taxing. Um, and, and, and so the comparison to something like the, and I ended up returning it, I ended up returning it. I have to pay the fees. I just, I just was like, look reasonably, I can't expect to get this done in a reasonable time frame. And this brings me to movies like the glass castle. I seek out a book like Fogo's pendulum because I want to learn something new. I want to experience something new. I want to expand my mind. I want to expand my sense of like experience and knowledge. And I want something that sort of culturally is going to give me something that I haven't encountered before. And I want, and I think it's going to stretch my mind out a little bit and, and also help me, you know, understand things. Um, so I might, and under one circumstance, seek something that sort of, I know I'm going to like it. It's going to pretty much confirm what I want. It might be really good. It might be really bad, but it's going to sort of live inside the realm of things that I'm familiar with and comfortable with. And then, uh, and that's one kind of entertainment. And then the other kind of entertainment is like, I want something that challenges me and that tries to force me to get step outside my comfort zone a little bit and figure out something that I might like. And the issue with the second class of thing is that it can be very difficult to work it into your life in terms of time and energy and amount of attention and stress given everything else that you're doing, it might not be a great way to apply your leisure time to something like this that's a huge project. A movie like The Glass Castle is in the middle. <laughs> like, like it's it challenges you. It's interesting. It kind of can push the idea. And, and like, I, the movie that I first... Uh, that I first encountered the phenomenon you're talking about, the sort of decline of this kind of storytelling, and I remember we talked about it, is the 2009 crime film State of Play, starring Russell Crowe and Ben Affleck, where I was like, this is a really good, really adult story that's about politics in an interesting way, and it like made me think, and it kind of provoked me, and and, and I thought it was really good, and nobody's going to go see it. Um, I mean, it made money, but just barely. Nobody's going to see it because this kind of movie doesn't get made anymore. And, and I think it's that there's this middle space between things that um, give you what you want versus things that challenge you, where that you think that the things that challenge you can't be made palatable and that you have to live in this state of kind of overextension in order to dwell in these kinds of places, and you don't. Like, yeah, there are things a, that, that, can, that yeah. would be a state of not play. Yeah, exactly. That's a state of work. Um, and so stuff like The Glass Castle... Uh, I mean, I would put most Oscar movies in this sort of area, too. Basically, most movies that are challenging at all, that aren't like three and a half hours long, that you can bother to get through, they're going to be pretty palatable. Um, but that's where I would put it, prestige, non-prestige. It, it's about this sort of halfway point between uh, being entertained and being challenged. And, and that it is a it is a sort of moderate way of having a moderate day. You go to the gym, you have some food, and you watch something that's interesting. And and I think that if if movies are one of your big cultural intersections, and you're not seeing movies like The Glass Castle, maybe not The Glass Castle specifically, uh, The Big Sick is a movie that I would say is really really awesome, and you should definitely go see. And that I would put in a similar sort of class uh, in terms of being like almost literature, <laughs> like uh, almost, but not quite. Um, then that, that can be a niche for you, especially if you're trying to learn to relive your life as, as an adult after you've sort of passed through the fury of your 20s. It's interesting. I, I would place the big sick as a kind of like, I don't know, there was something about it, probably because of the way it was marketed. Um, that that I, I you know I don't know it was more of an event I was sort of more aware of it I guess I'm more mm. squarely in its target demographic uh, and 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 like the the I don't know some I and I guess like um, uh, Kumail Nanjiani is in because he's on Silicon Valley and because he does his stand up and like he's sort of a new style celebrity and like he's social media engaged and and you know things like this and kind of in the mix in a way that none of the uh at, I, at least i'm not aware of any of the stars of of blast castle uh being <laughs> being social media is media uh, well woody harrelson not anymore i don't know if you know the social media story of woody harrelson but it is not i'm not going to repeat it here because it gets a little bit racy <laughs> But that, like, you know, I don't know. It was, I, yeah. It's, it, I would kind of, and I can't necessarily account for for the distinction. I feel, uh, except to say that I feel a distinction between between the two of those. Yeah. Oh no, there is a distinction, and I would even say that, like, whether the movie is is heavily promoted or feels like an event, 
is is important, but at the same time, there's a bit of you have a bit of a choice as to how you interact with it. So I was really excited when the big sick came out, and I really wanted to go see it, but it turned out to not be playing anywhere in my city for a little while. So then when I actually saw it, it was because I had time, and oh, I can go see this movie, and I kind of want to. And so the experience of actually seeing The Big Sick turned out to be different from the sort of expected experience of seeing The Big Sick based on how it was promoted and where it was in the culture. And so, like, it can, it can be both things. Uh, I, think, I think something like The Imitation Game is another movie that's sort of like this, where depending on was, the... That, that was very specifically for awards, though. Exactly. Right? Like exactly. The, but, just, yeah. but you don't have to see it as an award movie. Uh, you might. Maybe it depends on where, where are you picking up what they're putting down. Uh, maybe you are, maybe you're not. But yeah, it was very specifically for awards. I guess you would never see that movie if you didn't care about awards movies, unless you were like a big early computing fan. And you're like, oh, or man, or a big a, a big Benedict Cumberbatch fan, right? That's true. Is the, I don't think they could have fit any more of his face. Well, they could have fit more of his face in the poster, but they couldn't have fit more of the poster in his face. I think they put all the poster in his face. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know. Uh, but I'm, I'm really taken with this description that you have of like, of the, the work versus, you know, the work versus play, you know, they're, like there, there's kind of an, uh, kind of dichotomy, right? Like state of work versus state of play in, in how you entertain yourself. There's sort of a middle brow assumption. There's like a, a bourgeois assumption that you do cultural things to kind of better yourself in a way that there's a kind of moral force to, uh, there's kind of a moral force to the cultural things that you do. And, and it seems to be, I think of this as like a mid as like a post war kind of thing as as like almost a, a Mad Men era um, assumption and and actually you could say that Mad Men to a certain extent uh, charts the decline of this uh, of this imp- impulse like the idea that you know as as the middle class one of the things we do is like go to the ballet or something like that and that like we don't totally get it but we kind of work at it and there are like leonard bernstein vox explainer videos on the radio about how to understand the symphony and like you know uh, and and uh, and things like this and this this is an assumption that seems to be uh, more or less absent from the uh from from the culture now, the idea that that these things are edifying and we should do them because they're uh, because they're edifying in in a particular way, which is uh, related to but distinct from the descriptor you used, which is challenging. Yeah, and I would also add so another movie that I did this with, and and I know that we want to move on to at least one other topic. But one other movie that was this for me was the documentary I'm Not Your Negro, which I saw, which was great. I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast, but uh, I recommend seeing it. But that one has the extra advantage of being a movie where it's like, I might see it because it's important. Uh, I ended up seeing it because I had time, (laughs) and one of my friends was going to go see it, and I was like, I'm going to go to the movie theater with my friend, and it's going to be great. Um, And I went, and I love James Baldwin, so this will be great. Um, But then then I almost wonder if now the idea of movies being important – in a sort of political sense or, or a virtue – it's all virtue signaling, the, the, uh, and not just signaling, but like virtue experiencing, which is, I think, an important distinction. It's not just about signaling to other people that you're a good person. It's about experiencing something that's supposed to make you a better person or that's supposed to allow you to participate in the act of being a better person. Uh, and in the sense of like the, the uh, high culture being edifying to you as a sort of base assumption – also combines the idea that like a movie with a political message that's important is going to like enrich you as a sort of necessary as a sort of necessary norm uh, that you're encountering in the culture now. It's, it's going to um, make you more woke, <laughs> as opposed to the ballet, which is going to make you fall asleep. Make you fall asleep. <laughs> Actual ballets are really fun. Yeah, I, I recommend seeing ballets. Exactly, they yeah, get a bad rap. Yeah, exactly. Classical ballet, like you know, I don't know if you, you if you're a fan of boxing, right? Like <laughs> you, you should oh, yeah. you should watch. They, it's ballet. like boxing, it's... but they get to jump. They get to jump. <laughs> they don't get to jump at boxing. <laughs> it is like ballet is is not not a blood sport. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the number of, of very self important Facebook posts you see in in you know your average uh, your average coastal elites Facebook feed about like. You guys, watch this. It's important. 
you know, with some like some uh, some link to something from like, you know, Policy Mike or Upworthy or something like that. It's like, you know, this like this this highly engineered, uh, you know, four and a half minute video designed to flatter your prejudices. Watch this. It's very important. You know, Um, I mean, a a specific example, uh, a good friend of mine uh, was the editor for a. A documentary on the Syrian civil war. Um, okay, now talk about something that's really, you know, like uh, uh, important, right? I, I went to the screening at the Tribeca Film Festival, and the person presenting it, like, literally uses those words, like, this is an important film. Uh, and I'm not saying that's a degrade or anything like that. I mean, it, it certainly was, but that's kind of like the Ur example in a certain way. Like, you're not going to enjoy this at all. You're going to feel like <laughs> after watching it, but it's important. Well, yeah, but that, like, I, I feel like saying it's an important film. Uh, important and film belong to two different discourses a little bit. Like, this isn't... Well, I, I sh- maybe not film. Important and movie uh, belong to two different discourses, right? Like, important belongs to a, a political discourse and a discourse of sort of intrinsic value, right? And film belongs to a commercial discourse, which is a discourse... Or, or movie does. Yeah, movie, movie, does. movie does. I mean, film is more about uh, film is more about uh, being an artifact, right? Like, I guess it's a more well. No, it's not really because there's kind of an artsiness to it. It's not really a more neutral descriptor, but but uh, it's freighted with its own kind of uh, connotations and things things like this. But like you're you're talking at you're talking at cross purposes when you talk about sort of importance and when when you talk about movies because movie is something that's going to enter a marketplace. Uh, movie is something that you're going to see with your fiance. You know what I mean? Like movie is something that can be judged on its artistic merits, on its important merits, or on whether it you know on on whether it's like a pleasant date night, <laughs> you know, whether whether it's worth the like thirty dollars in tickets, twenty dollars in in popcorn and snacks, and fifteen dollars to get your car out of the the parking lot, right? Like, uh, there's a whole there's a whole other there's a whole other uh, set of of things like this. But we don't just go uh, to movies. Sometimes we see uh, sometimes we see live events uh, to you know to to spackle over the cracks in our cultural. In our cultural experience, Mark, I, th- I think you saw uh, a live event recently that you wanted to talk about. Uh, so, what? Uh, tell us what it was, and, and tell us a little bit about it. Sure. Oh my gosh, there's so many things to talk about, but we're running out of time here, so we're going to focus uh, on so one podcast. We have plenty of time, and, and I just want to point out that that was some gold segue there. Like, <laughs> I believe I believe we have another topic on our agenda. Mark, will you introduce and delve into the third topic for this show? Why, certainly. Thank you for passing the focus to me for the thing that we're prepared to talk about. Okay. Uh, I, okay, the short version of this is I saw Dave Chappelle live do stand-up. Uh, but that doesn't do uh, doesn't even begin to do this event, pop culture event, justice. What I saw was a four-hour-long um, variety extravaganza of comedy and music uh, and the intersection in between. Um, so let me give you a rundown of the entire show, right? To keep in mind, Dave Chappelle's headlining. It's a sort of like a residency in Radio City Music Hall, a string of stand-up performances he's been doing over the last uh, couple of months or so. Um, starts off with four uh, warm-up comedian acts. Okay, you know, this I understand, right? You don't bring out the big guns uh, right away. You got to get the, the crowd uh, lubricated and laughing a little bit. Um, four warm-up comedians. Um, to uh, not open for, up for a comedy act. By the way, the second billing for the comedy act was Ali Wong, who you might remember from the Netflix specials he did, Baby Cobra, which he famously posed uh, on the cover of uh, a, a very pregnant with a uh, with a, a, a tight dress that accentuated her pregnancy um, and while she told extremely filthy jokes. Um, so she's second billing on this. So we got four warmer comedians and then a DJ set by none other than the Little John himself. Um, to which you might respond, what? And I would respond, yeah! Okay. Or okay! <laughs> yeah, precisely. Okay, so Little John, um, which we'll come back to in a second, uh, and then Ali Wong, who was hysterical, brought down the house. Um, intermission comes back with none other than acoustic balladeer guitar hero John Mayer for a few sensitive songs on the acoustic guitar. Um, and then finally, our headlining act, Dave Chappelle. Um, who performs about an hour and a half or so comedy uh, comedy set uh, a little uneven but overall very entertaining um, and then capped off with a combined musical act of uh, of John Mayer and Dave Chappelle doing sort of a musical comedy improv kind of thing going on um, okay 
we could easily talk about any one of those segments for uh, quite a long period of time. But I actually don't want to focus on Chappelle so much because there's a lot of Chappelle already out in the in the discourse. I want to relay the interesting experience of Little John's DJ set. Um, okay, so you got these four uh, warm-up comedians come on, you know, the, the, each getting a progressively more boisterous reception from the audience. So finally, uh, it's time for Little John to come on. The lights go down and uh, the curtain rises because, you know, the comedians are performing in front of the curtain. And it rises to reveal an elaborate DJ set, um, lights going everywhere, and uh, his entrance music is nothing less than O Fortuna. If you're not up with your classical music, that would be bomb. Right, kind of like a, uh, uh, I'm not going to say a, a cheap joke, but a shortcut joke for saying that this is going to be epic. And yeah. you so much that if you're doing it, I think you have to be doing it tongue in cheek. I mean, like, ah, O Fortuna, um, you know, this is so grandiose. Ha ha. Um, and so Lil John's DJ set, um, well, also, by the way, the, uh, the, the, the run up to it includes a TMZ video where he, I think, half jokingly says that Dave Chappelle ruined Lil John's life because of the aforementioned what? Yeah, OK, sketch where uh, basically anywhere Lil John goes, people are yelling what? Yeah, OK, at him um, as if those are the only words that he knows uh, in his in his vocabulary. Um, so that the, the run-up includes that. So he gets down to business with his DJ set, which starts off with, uh, pre- more predictably songs that he either performed, uh, and or produced. Right. Um, so, uh, perhaps most famously, uh, the Usher song. Yeah. Um, from which the, yeah, comes from, um, get low, right. From the window to the wall. He got the entire, uh, audience singing along to that. He made sure that everybody knew which one was the, which direction was the window, which direction was the wall. Very important. When you're doing that. Uh, and of course, turn down for what? Um, which really brought the house down. Uh, the second half of it, though, perhaps might even be more interesting because let me just give you a, a, an example of the things. Basically, he, for lack of a better word, performed a, a, a sing along set of great uh, rock and rap songs from the late 90s and early aughts, including Gangster's Paradise. Um, uh, Under the Bridge by the Red Hot Chili Peppers, uh, One Shot uh, by Eminem from 8 Mile, and the big grand finale, Wonderwall by Oasis. Uh, and, and that's how Lil Jon ended his DJ set with uh, a large crowd, a sellout crowd at Radio City Music Hall singing along to Wonderwall. Um, it was odd. It was delightful. And speaking to one of my friends who experienced it after afterwards, we were kind of wondering, like, uh, if we were being kind of messed with a little bit, <laughs> as we might be a part of the joke. It's like, isn't this hilarious? A bunch of uh, white and Asian people came out to see Dave Chappelle and Little John got them singing along to Wonderwall. Well, right. What what um, like what, just from what you said, I know you didn't do a statistically valid sampling at the door, but like, uh, you know, what what did you notice about the, the racial dynamics of the audience? And and, uh, you know, as a follow up, which got more response, Get Low or Wonderwall? Hmm, OK, in terms of the demographics, I'd say it actually is, is uh, the largest group uh, split, but uh, largest group was white, um, followed by uh, black and followed by Asian, again, because uh, Ali Wong. Um, and uh, she has had, I think, quite a, quite a significant impact for a certain demographic of, uh, of uh, young, young Asian professionals. Um, so that's kind of the demographic breakdown. I'm sure you know other uh, people of uh, races and ethnicities mixed in there as well. Um, and what got the biggest uh, reaction? Um, it, it, it's a little bit tough to tell because they're, they're very different things. I mean, everybody. Uh, OK, no, let me go on and say it. Wonderwall got the bigger reaction. People need a little bit of coaching to, to get the window to the wall kind of thing. And uh, let's put it this way. My wife uh, was could sing along with all of Wonderwall and didn't quite know what was going on with uh, the window of the wall. business. <laughs> and uh, in a text uh, group text conversation was uh, uh, was unclear as to what the window to the wall was about. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. When you go to the window and you look out, you find that that all the lights that shine in through the window are blinding. <laughs> no. um, that's a, a way homer yeah so uh so that's that's what happened right this is like a i don't know 30 40 minute long dj set 
what do you guys think about this? Were we part of a joke? Um, or is this the sort of thing that kind of transcends joke and uh, objects of ridicule and it's just everybody's more or less on the same page and having a good time together? I mean, I think that I, I, I'm struck by a couple of things. I think putting a DJ set in the middle of, like a long, an extended DJ set in the middle of uh, an event like this is an interesting choice creatively, right? Like, because you have a yeah. lot of people, thousands of people coming to Radio City Music Hall uh, and sitting in seats, right? It's not like you can dance that much. You know, your dancing is kind of constrained by those seats. Uh, so, you know, the. It, but to be clear, the, you know, uh, Little John's very specific directions were to get up uh, out of your seat yeah. and dance, which right. we did. Well, How could we and, not? You know, and right, we, you, you had been instructed, and, right. uh, <laughs> you know, everyone was a polite and compliant audience. But the, the right, like, uh, normally you'd think of, like, uh, recorded music breaks in a show like that covering some kind of transition, some kind of stage business in the transition uh, that has to happen. Um, and, but that's not, that's not the case here. This is meant to be kind of an event itself. But I think, like, going to... Going to a live event, you know, and having having it be, uh, you know, it, I don't know how active was was Lil John in the in the mixing. Was he like, was there a spectacle component of it, or was he just like hitting play on the Spotify playlist and and you know then then uh, narrating a little bit as 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 the thing goes through like do do doing I guess DJ set like covers a lot of performance covers a lot of ground performance practice wise uh, and could be more more or less engaging but just putting something like that in the middle of a, of a live event kind of bemuses me a little bit yeah I mean I, I was I was in the nosebleed so I couldn't see like, you know, if he was manipulating the sliders very carefully, <laughs> that sort of thing. But it was, I felt it was more the latter. He just kind of hit play and uh, did his uh, his thing kind of in between. You know, of course, you know, he uh, he performed, turned down for what, um, to the extent that there's a song that can, you know, <laughs> has vocal performance. Uh, it does. I'm, I'm, I'm selling it short. Um, so, you know, he, he was certainly playing an active part in this. He wasn't just, you know, at a booth hitting play and just kind of, you know, jiving and shucking. He was, uh, you know, doing banter with the crowd and performed the vocal parts to songs and all that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, he, but he would do the thing like, you know, and the sing along songs, he would drop the volume, you know, for, uh, for Wonderwall or, or, or gangster's paradise and, you know, encourage everybody to, to sing along and, and all that sort of thing. That's some, that's some, a wedding DJ game that he has. Yeah. <laughs> right. So- this is what Chappelle did in his show, too, is he had hip-hop art- artists and DJs that would come on and do pieces during the right. show. Thank you for the reminder for that. It's been a long time since I, like, you know, yep. sat down and watched a, an entire, like, you know, installment of the Chappelle show. Yeah. And also, I mean, I even even what Nick Cannon did in Wild and Out with improv, the same thing that, that Dave Chappelle did with his show. But it's also what Saturday Night Live does and what The Tonight Show did. That you would combine comedy and talk show and music and spectacle. Uh, you know, David Letterman does this sort of thing. Stupid Petricks all up in there. And thinking about it, part of it seems to me to be an issue of taste. That Dave Chappelle has taste that uh, that is developed over time. That this is what he thinks he wants the night out for his audience to be like. He wants it to be informed by this experience of this kind of music and this kind of energy. And he thinks that that's the show that he wants to show his audience. And it's something that develops not out of a first principle, but out of out of sort of organically and the perception of it and the understanding of it over time. That would be my first. Un- that he's like, I want to put on a show like this because I feel like this kind of show is going to feel good. People are going to have a good time. People are going to want to see it. And the other side of it is that you start from the assumption that people are going to want to come to your show. And then you say, well, what do I do with the idea that people are coming to my show to get them to come back, to get them to stay invested? And I think this is sort of the Tonight Show Saturday Night Live angle where you don't give them long stretches of the same thing without interruption or modulation. And this even goes back to theater in the Renaissance where you would have intermezzos of clowns and music during long dramatic pieces because you want to have something you want to have something to create a positive experience for the audience so that if they come to see your show and your mainline thing isn't really what they like if they like the other stuff you're basically casting a wider net for the kind of people that might want to come see your shows multiple times now of course it's weird with Chappelle because it's like you don't really think you're going to get 
multiple Chappelle tickets. I mean, maybe you follow Chappelle around the country, but presumably this is an expensive ticket and kind of a treat, and it's something people are going to see once. But it's enough of a calling card for him that it's like, well, I really like rap, so I'm going to watch the Chappelle show every week and see who the rap star is. I kind of like comedy. I really like rap. I kind of like sketch. But Chappelle is great because I saw Kanye for the first time on Chappelle. So, and so I, yeah. I, th- I think you're right in that, like you kind of create, you sort of create variety uh, in doing it that way. And I think variety is an interesting thing. But I think there are a, a variety show, if you will. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> you create. That's that's kind of what I mean. Um, yeah. But and you know, this goes back to sort of vaudeville and burlesque, and like there's a thing. But the but the. Like I feel like the the value proposition. I don't know. There there are axes along which you can disaggregate, and axes along which you kind of can't disaggregate. And I think going. I feel like live performance from standups and live band performance. Like John Mayer, I understand in that in that lineup. Well, no, I actually don't understand John. <laughs> John, John I don't understand at all John Mayer in that lineup, just demographically. But a live musician in that lineup, I understand. Uh, you know, recorded music with sort of little live manipulation uh is something that i don't understand and i mean I, the the idea of of snl is that it's it's live music live sketches live news parody and like you kind of lie well the, there are uh pre, pre-taped bits uh but those function uh you know in the way that i talked about you know uh, recorded music functioning in a live show they cover like transitions and stuff like that and the whatever behind the scenes stuff uh snl has to do they usually do like a commercial parody uh like right after the monologue, right while everything is kind of being reconfigured for the uh, for the run of the show, um, so that that like that so to go from it's a question of like liveness versus not liveness, I guess that that I'm talking about, and like I, I feel like going going to hear a DJ. Uh, it's the DJ is kind of part of the experience. Like dancing is part of the experience. Getting high is part of the experience. Um, you know, getting low is part of the experience. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. The, the you know, and being able to move from the window to the wall, and and the the like the theater setting, the fact that the rest of it is is stand up comedy, where like it's being kind of made for you right there. Um, like this is you know, I don't know. The, it, it it just strikes me as an interesting. Uh, it strikes me as an as an interesting thing. I could see it. I mean, I could see it working in a different venue. Like I could see it working under under slightly different conditions but it's i don't know the 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 it's the liveness thing that that kind of gets me i mean lest anybody feel otherwise i thought it worked right in that like you know it it, at least the little john um uh, part of it it was very high energy uh just got the you know everybody really was into it um and provided a great on-ramp into ali wong's extremely energetic and rambunctious sketch uh by way of contrast uh john mayer comes on, does a like a solo acoustic guitar and singing singer songwriter type of thing. It's uh you know he does an up tempo thing towards the end, but it's it's pretty chill. And Chappelle comes on and uh, really kind of takes his time getting into a groove. And and there's the aforementioned uh, uncomfortable trans transgender jokes, which uh, weren't really landing well with the audience, which is what he chooses to start with and accompanied with somewhat uncomfortable stories about how he feels like at certain times his comedic material is not being well received. Which is a strange move uh, to make when you're a comedian, talking about the times when you bomb. <laughs> like, he, he, he literally spent a solid 10, 15 minutes uh, in and around that type of topic before going for things that got more reliable laughs, including, um, and, uh, to, to, to some irony, right? You know, everybody, the, the transgender jokes make people uncomfortable, but hey, when he jokes about the Amish, ha <laughs> that's funny. Love it. Killing. Slaying. Um, so, uh, I mean, I guess all that is to say it was uh, an evening of, of comedy and music that just stretched, stretched very far, very broad, as if to fill the cavernous space of the um, of the Radio City Music Hall and as if to uh, to, to fill the momentous occasion of Chappelle's long stand there. And by the way, it was his 44th birthday as well. So there is even on top of everything I just mentioned, um, a, a live band came on. Uh, to perform um, the 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 uh, what is it the the Staples Singers uh, I'll take you there um, for him and some other music as well at, at the end so there was just it, it was a lot it was, it was kind of a maximalist yeah type of event well cool um, all right uh, now has come we've come to the time on the agenda where I segue into the outro 
<laughs> Man, that that thing made you a huge spectacle without necessarily getting you there any faster. In other words, it was a golden segue. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. It's a it it was like we were advertising for that segue for months and months. There was such anticipation for the segue, and now that it's here, uh, you know, it's everything that we ever hoped it would be because it's time uh, for us to say goodbye this has been another episode this has been the uh, the overthinking it podcast spackle uh episode um interesting interesting things and you will find in the show notes on overthinking it uh links to all the things that that we talked about so that you can investigate them further uh you can buy you you know for less than it cost pete in library fees fines for uh keeping out foucault's pendulum (laughs) you can buy a paperback of foucault's pendulum from amazon we'll have a link to that in the show notes uh go to the homepage of overthinking it and uh you know click on show notes for this episode there'll be a little podcast widget up near the top click on show notes and you will find uh all of these things that i am talking about we'll return next week with a a game of thrones season wrap-up for the abbreviated season of uh of game of thrones uh it won't quite be fall the next time we talk but uh it's september so you know awards uh, movie season is starting so we have we all have that to look forward to. We have a lot of like, uh, uh, you know, important films that we're all going to have to see, and it's uh, it's it's just an interesting time to be alive, isn't it? We'll be back with more overthinking it podcast next week. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. I know now why you turned down for what, but it is something I can never do. I know now. I know what you turned down for why, but it is something that I can never do. I know not why you turned down for what, but it is something. Oy vey. Uh, uh.